Hello and welcome to another edition of the New Model Advisor podcast. I'm delighted to be, to be joined by the Landcats Consultancy Director, Mike Barrett. Mike, thanks for coming in. Hi there. And we've also got New Model Advisor's very own news editor, Charles Wormsley. Hi, Jack. Thanks for uh, inviting me in this time. No, always a pleasure. And today we're going to be talking all things World Cup 2018 related. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I've got that written down wrong. We're actually going to be talking about the all things FCA platform market study related. But Mike and Charles, you get extra special bonus points if you manage to provide any World Cup related analogy, analogies in there, which have become a little bit of a theme over the new model advisor coverage the last couple of weeks. Yes, well, it was coming home for a brief period. But now it's not. Now it's not. But what did come home at 7am on, on Monday morning, hours after England could have been lifting the World Cup trophy, was the FCA's 108-page interim report on its platform market study. And, and the report, although pretty positive on the platform market, did find that competition is not working as well as it should be for some consumers. And now might be, I think the FCA highlighted five areas of consumers where competition wasn't working as it, as it should be. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's important to, to keep in our mind that this is a competition market study. So the FCA has kind of, um, over the last couple of years, has got this new remit to, to make the market of their supervising work more effectively from a competition perspective, which then in turn delivers benefits to, to the end consumer. So whilst they've kind of got that, that supervision mindset still in mind, they're not coming at this from any obvious consumer detriment and it doesn't quite kind of have the the threat of violence that some of the more kind of supervision um, based documents carry for for example the DB transfer work as well where they know they can see something going wrong there and they're, they're catching up and doing something about it yeah. this is kind of much more of a kind of a, it feels much more of a gentle paced piece of regulation and there, there was a couple of bits which were picked up around where there are actually potentially some breaches of the existing rules, um, so in the areas of inducements in particular, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. But the, the main theme actually, and it was constructed around a big piece of consumer research, was that broadly, broadly consumers, whether they're on advised or DC platforms, are actually pretty happy with the outcome which they're, they're receiving. So in a lot of cases, it's kind of quite good news but as you say, there's, there's a groups of consumers for whom they've got a few concerns and they're actually going to ask a few more questions about all of this to then drive towards remedies as well. Yeah, so I think there were the five groups. That so the five groups were looking at firstly switching between platforms. So actually it can be difficult for, for several reasons, whether that's exit fees um, in the direct world in particular, or it could be in the advised world, actually the process which an advisor needs to go through and kind of the, is there a kind of apathy from the advisor side of things? Shopping around can be quite difficult as well. So obviously you can look at our beautiful heat maps to look at price um, to compare platforms, but actually very few consumers tend to be doing that for, for research finds. They're, they're making a choice for a platform and are probably only looking at that one choice of, of platforms, certainly in the direct world, to, to end up where, where they go. There's a really big piece around the risks and returns of model portfolios and how those are labelled and how easy it is for, again, for direct-to-consumer, D2C consumers in particular, to compare that. And that was probably something I wasn't expecting to see around that as well. And I think that's, that's an interesting area to talk about and could potentially kind of roll back into advisors and into wealth management, into asset managers as well. 
consumers missing out, fourth group consumers missing out on investment returns by um, investing on a platform but holding all of their portfolio or a large proportion of their portfolio in cash. So it was around about 9.8% from memory of, of D to C assets are held in cash, which is about double the, the proportion that's held on, on advised platforms. So do, do those consumers understand that they're missing out on investment returns and that actually their platform is probably charging them the same fee for being in cash and in our current low interest rate environment, that perhaps almost certainly means they're net negative. So they're, they're banking a guaranteed loss in that case. And then finally, orphaned clients. So um, where a client has fallen out of love with their advisor for whatever reason, but they're still on the advised platforms. How are advised platforms handling those clients? Are they acting in their best interests? And there was a really interesting um, question posed there about actually what role platforms should pay in ensuring that the client is getting a, a service from their advisor, which I'm sure is something which, if a provider does that badly, will upset a, a, a large number of advisors potentially. And, and so looking from what the FCA raised concerns about, what were the areas that they suggested in terms of remedies to, to solve some of these issues? Well, I think there's, there's certainly the more kind of immediate things of, of, of around inducements and there's some of the immediate rules, um, the, so the current rules which are out there which are potentially being broken and particularly the rules which have just come in around around MIFID. So that talked specifically around some of the benefits which which advisors are getting out of, out of the platform, whether that's platform functionality which makes their business more effective or some of the kind of the service and support bit, whether that's technical training, technical support, conferences, even white labelling was highlighted there as well. Yeah, I, I mean, that was just one of the issues that uh, advisors seemed most uh, worried or in many cases irritated by. Does white labelling or does you know, offering these support tools really create an inducement problem? If it helps the client in the end, is that an issue? Um, yeah, I think that's it's it's a question which was posed originally kind of 12 months ago. So 12 months to the day, um, yesterday actually, the, the, the first terms of reference for this study came out and 12 months later they're still answering, asking a lot of the same questions. So they're, they're, they're moving at a fairly gentle pace, I think it's fair to say on this one. But this, I think this question of actually who benefits from the platform and trying to kind of unbundle, if necessarily, the benefits of, from the, the advisor and the client side is, is a really, really important one. And it's touched on the report again as being really, really important, but it says further work is needed to understand that. The, the, the inducement side of that, in, ter in practical terms for, for providers and for the, the end advisor, there's quite a big difference between, say, removing a TVAS transfer tool and actually making a direct charge for that or making a charge for, uh, to, for advisors to attend a training conference versus starting to unpick some of the white labeling functionality which is out there and in particular starting to unpick some of the portfolio management functionality which allows a, an advisor to build an investment proposition and use that for a number of clients. That was kind of suggested that that might actually be if not an inducement, certainly a barrier to, to preventing advisors from switching around and changing platforms around. And I think if a platform is going to have to, if providers are going to have to address that, that's quite a big functional change yeah. for them to, to do so. I, I mean, that was the thing that uh, I think it was Standard Life referenced in a sort of a response 
to this report just that that was a benefit they highlighted according to them that it makes it easier for an advisor in terms of yeah, being so, able to so do this. Standard Life used the FNZ platform technology which has a really effective um, part of that platform called XHub which allows you to manage your investment proposition as an advisor, whether that's using your own model portfolios, whether that's using an external model portfolio provider, or it will give you access to about 50 DFM providers as well. And, and f in terms of the functionality, it's very, very easy to move around between that. But, that, but um, I'd completely agree with Standard Life. It's, it's integral to, to the platform. And yes, it does allow the advisor to make their business more efficient, but if there are, even if there are say 50 clients working through those model portfolios, every single one of those is getting the same outcome. And that functionality allows the advisor to really focus on the quality yeah. of that outcome and ensure that, that that's as, as good as it can be. If you, if you flip that around and actually the advisor had to manage 50 individual clients on an individual basis, that becomes much, much more um, inefficient for them to work that way. Um, and some of the other kind of key themes which were which were touched on, I think. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't. I think some people have suggested, Mike, that this part, the paper was kind of more. What was more important for what we, they did? The FCA didn't say than what they did say. I mean, do you agree with that to a certain extent? Um, I'm not sure that's the first thing that struck me when I saw that we had 400 pages <laughs> almost of, of, of reporting to, to to read through at <laughs> seven o'clock on, on on Monday morning, but. Um, I definitely, I definitely feel actually that the, the scope of this work is is a lot wider than directly platforms. So it's touching, it's touching onto certainly onto advisors, and uh, advisors use platforms very, very heavily. So this is quite integral to to the way they've been managing their businesses recently. It touches on asset management, and it's uh, it's kind of a reverse, a mirror image of some of the stuff which the asset management market study um, put out albeit that piece of work moved far more rapidly towards final rules than, than this one has. But it's also even hinting at potentially starting to look at, um, so some of the remedies, to, uh, particularly for exit fees, for example, posed the question about actually should exit fees go beyond the platform world, which um, if that starts to extend into life companies, then people like St. James's Place are the obvious one where in theory actually they, they have what might be described as an exit fee. So if they're looking for commonality around that and from a customer's point of view, the scope could go into that area. And on the model portfolio stuff there, there's a question of should we look at expand this into wealth management, into asset management more generally as well. So it's a, it's a big, big piece of work. And yeah, there's a few kind of probably lower level topics that weren't necessarily explored in the area in perhaps the, the the level of detail which you want, but I almost think they've, they've bitten off more than they, they can chew in this respect. Interesting. I mean, one, one area that they did bring up, I think, in the initial paper was uh, vertical, vertical integration. Yeah, and that, just speaking of SJP, uh, on, on, oh, yeah. was, I mean, I, th I think a lot of advisors were hoping the paper would take SJP to task because they always hoped that with the FCA, but you, you were saying that well, it I, didn't I, really... I, yeah, I mean, much. I think the vertical integration wasn't featured too heavily in the report. And you know, I did, I did actually speak to Mary Starks from the FCA that after after the report came out, and she was she was quite um, kind of almost ambivalent about vertical integration, and she she just said that we, we did look at this, but what we f we found it didn't give us cause con for concern, and and we didn't found we yeah she she was she was fairly kind of 
you know, I'm, she she wasn't she didn't come down hard on vertically integrated businesses as some people might have expected or, or some advisors might have kind of hoped in the case of you know for example SJP. Um, so I mean, were you surprised by that, Mike, at all? Or? I, th I think the bit the bit I was surprised with on those lines was that there was there still doesn't seem to be kind of a, a clear definition or an understanding of actually what a platform is, and I think one of the things which struck us as we as we read through all of this is the if we feel this work would benefit from splitting out the direct to consumer platforms and the advice platforms and having separate studies for that. But I think the vertical integration side probably impacts the advised, the advice side more. The the definition of platforms is is it on one hand it might feel like a bit of a moot point of kind of theorizing around actually what a platform is. But I think most people now accept there's quite a almost a fundamental difference between the vertically integrated models and the type of experience which those customers go through and particularly the investment solutions which they end up with versus somebody like say Transact or Nucleus where they are independent of, of, of a parent company or of an asset manager and actually their, their sole source of revenue as a business is the platform charge which, which the client which the client pays. And both of the outcomes we see on both of those business models tend to be pretty good and, and research which, which accompanied the paper on Monday supported that as well. It's not necessarily saying one is bad and one is good, but they are very, very different mod business models. And I just don't think that the regulator has a clear enough understanding of what platforms are doing and the actually, if there are different models out there, perhaps they should be regulated more specifically and have more kind of uh, kind of personalization almost around the regulation rather than trying to badge the two of them together. Transactor a very different model to, to um, Quilter or St. James's Place or Standard Life. I think that's, that's going to be an interesting area to keep an eye on for the future if those are going to go down that. Do you think they're going to do more on vertical integration or do you think they're satisfied now? I think it, 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 like with all of these things, it comes down to the end outcome. Um, so um, we, we've kind of touched on St. James's Place, which is almost inevitable in a lot of conversations, albeit yeah. they are not actually a platform. Um, so we're completely out of scope. By the regulatory definition? By the regulatory definition around this. Um, so they, they, they do not have, they do not structure themselves as a platform service operator. Even though they have, they have an administra they have a, uh, administration system that allows their advisors to buy and sell funds. And that's powered yeah. by that's powered, powered by FDS. IFDS. And every year they have their accounts which come out and they say they've spent X million pounds on replatforming projects with IFDS, yeah. even though they don't have a platform. No, they are a life company. And yeah, I think, and ask the question of the customer, the customers there, are you on a platform? Do you know what a platform is? And you'll get the same answer as you do from advised customers who are IFA, on platforms. IFAs or... Um, but it's, yeah, I think the, but the thing, the thing which I think, uh, um, whenever the SJP debate comes up, actually a lot of people miss is that when you look at their customer survey and the, the client outcomes which are being delivered, their, their clients, their customers are very happy with what is going on. They have a decent relationship with their advisor. The outcome which the advisor is articulating to them is, is being delivered and the customers are happy with that. And you can be, you could kind of, 
uh, be cynical, if you can imagine the Landcat being cynical. Uh, but yes, there's barriers to exit there potentially, and it's perhaps a bit opaque. And yes, they are probably paying a, a quote premium price for that service. But if the client is happy with what is being delivered, does the does that means does kind of the outcome justify the means? And I think again, these are these are questions which have been slightly dodged through through this work, albeit it is just a platform study. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I suppose from the advisor perspective there, it would be, you talked about the competition perspective of the FCA, they maybe feel that it's a competition issue, they're having uh, big vertically integrated companies that a lot of them are competing with. So, And also these businesses, you know, this is where advice is going, you look at the recruitment of Open Work or SJP or, you know, Intrinsic, you know, this is where new, this is, this is, these are going to be the advice businesses which will own a huge majority of, of the share of the market in two or three years' time. And I mean, already do that, but it, it's going to go up exponentially. So I, th I, think, I think the area for vertical integration, which does need to be kind of uh, resolved, and again, there's questions posed around all of this um, along these lines, is, is the relationship that platforms are expected to have with asset managers. And vertical integration kind of clouds that as well. So there seems to be still this view that the, the platform should should beat up the asset managers and get a reduced cost of investing, use their collective scale and get discounts out of the fund groups to, to pass on to the end consumers. Um, but I think there, there's, there's, there's a few points we would make around that. There's the certainly the impact of vertical integration. So if you are standard life, just to have them as an example, as a business, you are wanting people to invest in your own funds. So how keen are you to say to go and get a discount out of Aviva funds, yeah. just for example, to, to increase the flows there? It feels, yeah, it feels almost counter to their business strategy. And is it, is it reasonable for the regulator to expect them? But beyond that, the, this whole process around discounts and the reality of the discounts from the customer outcome is, is something we've looked at for a while. And it is not great. There's, the research that came out on Monday talks about an average discount of, of eight basis points. But by, by definition, it's for larger platforms with the scale which are able to command that. And these are discounts from the fund managers, the asset managers? Yeah, and don't get me wrong, um, these are discounts which get part, whatever is negotiated here gets passed in full to the end client. They're, they're the sole beneficiary of this. The, the platform provider can't trouser any of this anymore. All of, that, all of that's been banned. But so if they do get eight basis points as a discount, you get that as, as, as a customer. But just, just to pick on Hargreaves, because um, they are in the direct market, by far the market leader there. They have about a 40% market share, and they command the biggest discounts. The, the issue is that if that discount is eight basis points, their platform fee is 45 basis points, but you could go to someone like AJ Bell or Santander or any other um, D2C platform and probably save about 20 or 30 basis points potentially yeah. on your platform charge. So it becomes really counterintuitive from the customer's point of view where whilst you've got this discounted fund and it feels great, everyone loves a discount, you're better off buying the more expensive version of the fund on a cheaper platform from total cost of ownership perspective. 
And then if that wasn't complex enough, you had the, the actual mechanism of that discount. So the, by far the kind of the most efficient way of delivering that dis discount to the client from the provider's point of view, and particularly from the asset manager's point of view, would be to have a rebate on, the, on that share class. On, so you keep one common version of the, of the fund across all one platforms, share one share class, and you say, right, Hargreaves will give you eight basis points rebates, AJ Bell will give you five basis points or whatever it can be as well. And if AJ Bell say, no way, we want eight basis points, you just alter the rebate around that as well. And that reduces the need to have multiple versions of share classes, which creates horrible issues around re-registration and complexity when customers look at fund yeah. lists, you've got 10 versions of the fund. But the, but the, the big span in the works of that is that those rebates are taxed and HMRC have been fighting hard around all of that. And even though Hargreaves thought they'd won the, the, the case around that recently, HMRC have very um, generously appealed that and that's going back to court. And again, we're not expecting that to come out until next year. So all of this is, it's still, it's very complex and the customer outcome is mediocre at best. Yeah, and on that issue, sorry, on that issue of complexity, I think one of the areas the FCA raised in the, in the study was the issue of modern portfolios. And particularly the idea that the risk labels that clients were being put into, or the, you know, the, the, the conservative fund that, that, that they were that they were going into, it, it's so divergent from from one platform or from one model portfolio to the other. And then this seemed to be like the FCA were kind of, you know, this is a big issue, but we're not really sure what to do about it. Well, they did suggest a couple of remedies, but it seems like this is quite quite a big issue that that. It's difficult to address, is it not? Yeah, it, it, it surprised me to see that stuff. I, it's not sure something I've seen as an issue kind of, I mean, almost in the real world where I, I question I question how are people actually, are, are D2C consumers actually going through this process of comparing model portfolios from a number of providers and then deciding where they're going to go? They're not going to be doing that, are they? No, and, and particularly, particularly if you start to kind of... Um, if you start to include some of the robos around this as well, so the, the model portfolios, which which for likes of Nutmeg and so on, would be providing. But I I think there's I think there's probably I think that in a lot of those instances there's there's room to improve for improvement in, in the disclosure. So actually at portfolio level, what are the total costs that you can expect around all of this? What are the impact of those costs over the long term? How is this being invested? And what kind of outcome can you expect from a risk perspective? What risks are you going to take? What range of risks um, are, are you taking? I think all of that can be articulated quite well. There's a suggestion in there of using more standardised terms like cautious and balanced. And I think that's dangerously naive if you go down that path and will be a massive step backwards. Why is that? Um, though the, the nature of those, those words are subjective. So your definition of cautious is that you pack two parachutes when you jump out of an aeroplane. Not that you invest in loads of bonds. Yeah, my definition is that I don't get on no plane. And it's um, yeah, <coughs> people make their own judgment around all of that. And, and that was something I can remember as an industry was fought hard against in terms of the old cautious, balanced, managed funds as well of being such a, as I said, such a dangerously naive way. People thought that their balanced fund 
was a certain asset allocation. They thought their cautious fund was, a, I can remember looking at cautious funds 10 years ago, which had kind of 60, 70% in equities and were far from cautious when the, when the market dropped as well. And as I said, that, that would be a massive step backwards if, 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 if an industry went down that, down that route. And looking at other areas the FCA touched on, I mean, I think one of the interesting quotes I think you flagged, Mike, was obviously as a whole, the paper was quite positive about the platform sector in terms of the outcomes or the, the perception from consumers. But one, one of the quotes was that while it is from the FCA, while it is possible that consumers' needs and behaviours drive some of the differences in platforms pricing, we have not found a convincing explanation for the level of complexity and the lack of transparency we observe. We know that some of the practices we have, observed, we have observed are consistent with the way firms would behave if they wanted to strategically increase complexity. So, I mean, what do you make of this? Do you think the, the FCA is saying that, that platforms are deliberately making things more complex in order to hide their charges and, you know, stop consumers really shopping around and getting better deals? Well, that does, it does seem to be what they're saying on that quote. I think the, the, the obvious question then is, OK, who are the platforms and what are you doing about it? If, you're, if as an investor, I'm on a platform which you have identified is deliberately making their charging structure as opaque as possible and creating barrier to exits, then I'd quite like to know about it and I'd quite like to know that the regulator is doing something about it. But that's not what they've kind of suggested in terms of remedies or the solutions to these problems. Not visibly, no. So I guess the, the question is, if that is the case, what are they doing about it and how quickly is it being referred through into supervision and potentially enforcement? But we, we sometimes, you, we've seen it in other market studies where there's been, there's been areas of fairly obvious detriment where they expect something to happen. And the, the obvious one we talk about a lot is the 1% trackers almost two years ago to the fairly soon. Those, it'll be two years since the asset management study highlighted again that those trackers charging 1% are ripping people off. And those, those products are still out there. You could go online now and buy one. I'd urge you not you to, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, there, nothing seems to have happened in that as well. So but this link between the competition market studies into, into supervision and enforcement is, is, is not something we see necessarily working particularly well. I think the FCA just sometimes struggles to on on what its role is in this because it's looked at the market, found you know, complexity and problems with charges, and that's in asset management as well as the platforms. But then they're not a price regulator, yeah. And I think they they would maybe want to do more, but they just feel they don't have the power. They don't want to be open to that accusation. Um, uh, and so it just sort of leaves them this bind where they've announced and found a lot of issues, but they haven't got a, they, they're not able to take it any further because ultimately it's a business they can charge what they want for for it without without straying into being a price regulator, the FCA can do nothing. Definitely, and I think also they obviously regulate more markets than just the platform markets. So there's kind of there's a there's an order priority around this yeah. generally. Um, I think I'm right in saying there's a few things politically happening at the moment which require a bit of well, change to be to be delivered as well. Yes, he did come out recently and say we're not doing anything now. Yeah, until yeah but to do list Brexit, Brexit done. basically. So. And also, I mean, again, even in the advised world, if if as much as we we're really interested and passionate about platforms, if we saw that they were prioritising this and letting the DB transfer stuff 
go go unsupervised that would be yeah. a big alarm bell so you've got to get you've got to get the priority yeah. um, right around that and i think if you look at if you compare to the asset management study which this platform study came out of you know you look at the asset management market and you had asset managers making what 30% yeah. margins whereas you look at the platform market and you know they're losing money they're all lot, yeah, lots yeah. of them are losing money and you think well should you be tackling the, the area of the market which is making a huge amount of profit every year and has been for a number of years? Or should you be tackling the guys who are losing money every year? Yeah, you know, I, I, must, I must admit that we, we, we put out a paper a couple of years ago at the Lancat called Platforms Are Dead. And part of that was actually that nobody's making any money in this market was one of the, one of the themes around that. This did a little bit feel like the FCO's versions of Platforms Are Dead. And particularly that, that statement here that they don't see any sustained profits within the platform market. So actually, yeah, there, there's no obvious sign of consumer detriment because nobody's making any money off the back of it. Yeah, if and they, then, are, if and they then, are trying to rip customers off, platforms are doing a really bad job at it in, in, in the main. So. And there is an argument to say that you know look, the FCA want a competitive market here. They want to they want a market with lots of players in it. So if they do take a lot of direct enforcement action. They do really interfere with this market. That will perhaps encourage players not to come into the market. It can maybe even coax a few players to move out of the market. And that's not what the FCA want. The FCA wants a market with lots of players where there's competition and you know there's there's healthy competition in terms of price that yeah, but, but 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 I think the, the the bit the bit the kind of the unknown from from their point of view is is the end customer so the, the FCA will directly supervise most platforms just by virtue of their scale um, irrespective of whether they think anything is going on though a large organization is is directly supervised so they'll have that day-to-day -day insight of what's going on in an organization and they can kind of hopefully get some sort of sense of early warning of issues but that doesn't give them access to to the advisors, let alone to the end client. And that's what this research addressed a lot of. And that was, I think that, as I said, that was the encouraging part where they did focus on a big sample size of consumer research, both in advised and D2C consumers. And broadly, those, those, those consumers were happy with what they're getting. Yeah, I mean, you say that they're looking at the big, but they're able to look at the problems emerging in big platforms. But, and but I was referring to something else you said earlier, that this seemed to repeat a lot of stuff that uh, you at the Lanka had said in the paper a few years ago. I think it's repeated stuff that um, we, you know, New Model Advisor has published uh, and maybe some of our lesser rivals as well. Yeah. Um, but They're just reading the Lanka blog and, reading, they're just, and, and then publishing it again two years what, later. What else do you need to do? Yeah, from that? <laughs> exactly. But there, but there is a, maybe a serious point there in that they just feel a little bit behind the, behind the curve as they... There, there wasn't much in technology, yeah. which to me has seen the biggest and issue. And I did, I did ask them year. about that after and in, into with with them after, and I said they said, look, you know, when we started the study, platform tech issues weren't a big concern for us, but over the course of it, we've been uh, made aware of issues, and and this is something we might look at later. We're keen to engage with stakeholders about this. We want to look at this further, but you know, if you look at what's happened with platform technology, the issues have really been earlier this year and in the last six months. And they could have been seen coming because these projects are long, they say it themselves in the paper, the FCA says, replatforming projects are long-term, multi-million pound projects. So they, they surely had an awareness that this could have been an outcome, but there seems to, I don't know, they seem just a little bit behind the curve uh, when it comes to identifying problems. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, I don't know what you think about that, Mike, but I think that's been, uh, you can, you can, you can, 
find that in other areas of what the FCA has been doing. Yeah, there, there, there certainly is, and yeah, it's been it's been very well documented. There's been a, a number of issues um, this year with with plant providers who have gone through into replatforming. This year, we we we've we've said consistently we we don't find one instance of a of a completely successful pain-free replatforming, whether that's through advisor or customer disruption or even just delivering the thing something remotely close to budget or, or or on time. They are really, really, really challenging projects to to deliver and execute. But I think also on the technology side it's kind of it's looking at the not so much the impact of the technology suppliers, but the kind the kind of potential for for, for risk around all of that. So FNZ are a really, really robust organization and have a good relationship with the regulator. But just in theory, if that platform went down, it takes down Standard Life, Zurich, Aviva, um, Vanguard, all Santander, mutual. potentially all, all mutual when they, they get onto the system as well. So that potential, there's a potential there for very, very high impact. So it's kind of a, a low probability, high impact risk, which I'm, I'm certain we'll be tracking that. Yeah. And were there any other areas, Mike, that you think you were kind of disappointed to see that the FCA didn't look at or didn't focus on within this paper or, or any, any areas that you would like them to look more at in the final report? Well, I think the, the one thing which has kind of struck me over the last year or so um, from, from a lot of the FCA material is that there, there's a lot of stuff coming out of, 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 of the FCA. So 400, just short of 400 pages around this as well. If you look at the it just in the advisor world, we've had a uh, paper around non-workplace pensions, which um, is covering a lot of platform business as well. Loads of stuff around MIFID at the start of the year. And as was identified in this work, there's questions being raised as to kind of how, how up to speed a lot of advisors are with things like MIFID and some of the prod um, target market work as well. I just think more generally, there's a need to communicate that better to to advisors. Um, the FCA actually used to be really good at this a few years ago when, um, particularly when Rory Percival was around, where they would put out kind of guides around good and poor practice and examples of firms, obviously anonymized of people who are doing things really well. And if you really want to be whiter than white, this is what you should go to. And if you're doing this, then really stop doing it because you're going to get a visit from the enforcement team soon. And that, that seems to have been lost in the last few years. And in the best will in the world, um, not a, every advisor is going to wade through a 400-page piece of research. Not every advisor is going to wade, wade through 800-page final rules on MIFID. And I think there's, yeah, it's just interpreting that and kind of summarising that into the real key things that advisors need to know. And particularly if there are advisors who actually, for some weird reason, don't read the material which the Lancat or NMA put out and do that job for them. I can't believe that for one minute there's advisors who yeah. do there's that. There's no advisors out there who are not reading the Lancat no. or the NMA. Guys, thank you very much for joining us. It's been riveting stuff. Pleasure. Cheers. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks, Mike and Charles. And thank you for listening to another edition of the New Model Advisor podcast. And if you like what you hear, Remember to subscribe at, at New Model Advisor on iTunes. And also, if you really like what you've heard, definitely leave us a review. Thank you very much.